Amen. Please be seated. There are two inserts in your bulletin. I want to point out the yellow one just very quickly. This is a listing of all the new Sunday school classes that begin next week. We've just ended the winter quarter, and now it must become spring because this is the spring quarter for the Sunday school. Uh, So it should be warm like this next week. And you will notice there are uh, classroom assignments based on the age of your child. Then there are classes for middle school and high school. And look at these offerings. I mean, these are, I'm almost ready to skip my class and go to one of these because these are solid offerings by great teachers for middle school and for high school. And then there are four different options uh, for adults. Really, there's five. There's four main classes that go the whole quarter. You could see the explanation for them. And there is a Meet the Pastor class. That's if you are new to the church and you're interested in information about the church without a hard sell to join the church, this is the class for you. It gives information uh, about membership, about what our church is about. So come to that. All of the adult classes are in the lower level, just below us, uh, with the room numbers there listed. So come uh, ready next week. Uh, and thank you for the teachers who have just finished this quarter. You've been a great blessing to us all. Now, the other insert is what I now draw your attention to. It has an outline for you based uh, or to direct us uh, for the sermon this morning. Now, we have been walking through the prophecy of Isaiah for some months. Now, I was ridiculed, scorned, and otherwise mocked for how long it would take me to get through Isaiah. I know not everybody. Some shaking their head, no, I'm not mocking you. I remember you. But we're almost halfway done. It hasn't been a year. Now, uh, it will go slower as we get into the later chapters, but these are the most difficult preaching chapters because uh, you don't find lots of precedent for preaching through these because it's a lot of repetition. A lot of it's difficult to connect with with today. We have a hard time understanding how it relates to today. So I've been trying to walk slow enough so that you know Isaiah. When's the next time you're ever going to read all through Isaiah? Certainly as a church together, when would that be? I don't know. So this is our opportunity, and I want to, without apology, walk through slowly so that the people of Redeemer, you know the book of Isaiah. And that's the goal. That's what I feel called by God to do and bring to you. Now that calls you to really be engaged in the process. Reading ahead is helpful. Getting a study Bible like uh, the, the English Standard Version Study Bible or the Reformation Study Bible, those are good resources as you read through with words you might not understand, context that's not familiar. Just reading ahead to see what's coming next will help you because this poetic language, it's high prose, and it's difficult if you just hear it for the first time. Now, nevertheless, I understand that everybody has time to do that each week, and I want to have as much understandable to you as possible. So with that, it's important to set the stage, especially as we turn a bit in the book from the focus on the kingdom of the north called Israel or Ephraim, the switch is now to the kingdom of Judah, the south. You remember Israel, one nation, divided in half the north and the south. The north succumbed to the pressures of the world and they, they disobeyed God and they grew in rebellion against God and they sought the comfort of other nations and the security of other nations. And God brought discipline upon them so severe that they were the lost tribes of Israel never to be identified again. That's the northern kingdom, and Assyria, the power of the day, had taken them, occupied them, and dispersed them, taking their identity completely away. Now that nation of Assyria, the most powerful in that part of the earth, maybe all the earth at that time, had pressed down to the south, 
and were assembled on the border ready to come in and take Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. Judah looked cleaner than the north. They looked more devoted than the north, certainly more religious than the north. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. They were going through the rites and the rituals. They could look to the north and say, Though they, were the, they were the heathens. They gave up. They were, the, they were the wayward children. We are the true children. And there was a sense of spiritual pride that certainly characterized Judah at this time. Not everybody. There's a, a humble remnant for sure who truly trusted in God's Messiah to come, believed in God, and were fretting over the fate of their countrymen because of that pride. It doesn't matter what kind of pride it is. National pride to the north was their undoing. Now a spiritual pride was threatening the south. Because they looked the part of God's people, they thought they were secure. Now, what is not said up front in this passage, we learn as we go through, and I'll have you know it'll help you. While Judah's looking so religious, their leaders are secretly making a plot to have a treaty with Egypt. Remember, the undoing for the north was to not trust in God's promise for protection and provision. And instead, they looked to nations to help fight off the Assyrians. God brought judgment to them for that. Now, Judah, although outwardly looking like they believe in God and trust in God, I mean, after all, the sacrifices that they are doing at the temple are a picture of dependence on God's Redeemer to come. They're saying all the right things outwardly, but behind the scenes, almost as if God could not see, they're trying to make a deal with Egypt to have Egypt come up and help them fight off the Assyrians who are right at their border. So, Isaiah 29. God speaks to Judah about the humbling he's going to bring because of their disobedience and their pride of thinking they had a smarter way than God did to protect. He will bring judgment, of course, to Assyria, although he doesn't name Assyria like he does in the other passages. And we see something different, though. Judah is the last remaining stronghold, if you will, of the seed of the woman who would come through the generations and would come through Judah and be the Messiah. So because of God's binding himself to an oath, he has to maintain his people, yet at the same time he has his righteousness to uphold, and he does that too. And in this picture of what he does in history, we gain all sorts of insight about how he works with us, how he's even brought salvation to us as individuals and as his church. With that, I will read some of the verses, but we'll look at all the verses. So you want to have your Bible open to page 589 in your pew Bible or whatever, your electronic copy or your hard copy. Open to Isaiah 29 as we'll look at all the verses, and you want to be able to go to those verses when I direct your attention to a certain place. For now, I will begin by reading God's Word in Isaiah 29, verse 10. I'll read down to verse 19. Hear now God's inspired and inerrant Word. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, 
while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Let's bow together as I pray. Lord, once again, we have a picture of your sovereign grace and power in the passage before us. Despite unbelief and disobedience, you save a people for yourself. You remedy our spiritual deafness by giving us ears to hear. You heal our spiritual blindness by giving us sight. You give us your holy word, which communicates your good news in Jesus Christ, so that we can hear, so that we can understand, so that we can trust in you. We can see that our salvation is wonderful. You have made us your own, and we will be forever grateful. Please send your Holy Spirit to us to help us understand your word and to be changed by it. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is no question that good form in worship is important to God or he would not have given such explicit detail about how the people of God ought to worship him. And certainly tradition can be helpful for informing us about what past generations thought was right and and important. And hopefully what they thought was right and important according to God's word. Every generation should test what comes before with a respect and an appreciation for it and hold that which is, is making the impact it's supposed to. It's based on what God tells us we should do, and it brings our hearts into engagement. It's not just an outward thing we do. It's something that comes from the inside and is manifested on the outside. But we can certainly all appreciate how easy it can be to fall into rote or to just habit or just outward expression that does not have an inward reality. Anybody can understand this, and it really doesn't matter what worship style that you're, you're partake in. Uh, if we all study the Word and see that God has certain elements that we should have as part of our times of worship together, it may look a little different, but the elements will be there but you could fall into a just outward expression without inward reality. Isn't that possible? Certainly the form we have, you could just read through the prayers or read through the, the readings and you could just say words in response and not mean them or think about them. It's possible. I mean, it can happen. Maybe you can fall into that. I've even seen, I've been in more modern services that don't have the liturgy like we have it, but I've been amazed to watch how it's similar there as well. As soon as the band starts playing, people who were talking or drinking coffee before all of a sudden turn and immediately raise their hands because they're so impacted by what they just heard. It's almost like their liturgy. They turn around and they raise, it's their reaction. It's, it's, it could be just an outward display. I don't know if it is or it, is, it isn't. 
Who's to judge? God's to judge. And that's exactly what he does when he looks at Judah. Judah, who have no more righteousness than anybody else, but feel a certain confidence in their outward expressions. They have the temple. They have the sacrificial system. They have the priests. They have the prophets living there. They've got the spiritual outcroppings. It looks like they should have it together. They got religion. Well, that's the problem. It's so important for people who have been Christians, especially for a long time, to be reminded of the wonderful salvation that we have received and has prompted our worship. Um, The outward modes of worship that we follow are meant to conjure up our sense of awe of who God is and what he saved us from. It should stir us inside. It shouldn't just be an outward expression. It's meant to draw us into more engagement with the wonderful salvation we have. But it could be a wonderless unbelief if we are just left at the surface level. But it's tying us to a wonderful salvation, and it deepens our belief when we recognize from whence it comes. Do we remember what God has saved each of us from and why we are here and able to sing praise to him for that? Our worship ought to be a joyous expression of thanks to God in a renewal of our awe and our love for him. We have a picture of God's salvation, of his people, and it's before us here in Isaiah 29 once again. And the message that breaks through our rigidity and fills us again with the wonder and gratitude of his grace. God's wonder-filled salvation, we see here even for the hard-hearted, for those who don't believe, his wonderful salvation breaks through the disbelief, gives belief, it's irresistible to us, and we celebrate it. We see a process as he confronts Judah. Look first how God works humility, and humility is necessary for salvation. Until someone can confess and admit their low estate before God, their sin before God, they can't be saved. Uh, a person doesn't think they need to be saved. They won't depend on the Savior. And so God brings us low by his grace so he can show us his wonderful salvation. This is what he does for Judah. He always humbles human pride. It starts in verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Ariel is a, an expression tied to most likely the temple, in particular the altar hearth where the fire is burned and the sacrifice is burned there. It was a descriptor for Jerusalem, the place the temple existed in. And it's the place where David encamped. It's the centerpiece or the capital of Judah. Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feast run their round. In other words, it seems like he's saying in one year from now, or thereabouts, something's going to happen. So we could surmise, if this is talking about, which most scholars think, and I think as well, this is talking about the coming siege of Jerusalem. In history, Assyria comes over the border and they lay siege to Jerusalem for a time until God delivers them. So this is a prophecy of that siege that will come in about a year from the time he's writing it. So it's about 702, 703 B.C., And year to year, let the feasts run their round. Verse 2. Yet I will distress Jerusalem, Ariel. And there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, a sacrificial pit. 
a hearth for the purpose of purifying. Verse 3, And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. You remember when he talked about, the prophet talked about God using Assyria to bring discipline. He's doing the same thing here. We know that God takes Assyria like a, a lumberjack, takes an axe, puts it in his hand, and wields it to bring discipline. So he's saying to Judah, I am going to bring you low. I am going to encamp around you. I'm going to besiege you with towers. What does that mean? Well, in Jerusalem, unlike the north, they have walls. They have walls around the temple complex. And so he's going to bring towers up against them. And this is reference to the Assyrians. They have architectural uh, masterpieces of war. Battering rams, ladders that would go up immediately against the wall and could be breached by troops, catapults, all sorts of systems to break down the wall to get in and to lay siege. God's saying he will do that, and of course he means he's going to use Assyria to do this. Verse 4, what will this accomplish? And you will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. Isaiah is predicting the siege on Jerusalem from Assyria that will come in just a year. He's predicting they're being taken by that same terrorizing force that took the north. Yet at the same time, not naming Assyria, we see him bringing his own fatherly discipline upon his people because they have become all too familiar with their God. They had taken for granted who he is. They're worshiping in one sense outwardly, but behind the scenes they're working a deal with Egypt, who they think is their savior. Oswald, the commentator, says, whenever God's people become familiar with him and believe they have him under control, then they are in desperate danger. And this is what God declares, and he uses language that's historic in tone, talking about being brought low or humbled, From the earth they'll speak. They won't be up top of powerful walls speaking or on top of Mount Zion. They'll be down low. And almost in language reminiscent to God speaking to the serpent after the serpent was cursed, who would be lay low on the ground and then the dust speak. You have this language of God's people. From from the dust your speech will be bowed down. You see, God has to bring them to a place of humility so they recognize who the true Savior is. They thought Egypt was the Savior. They thought whatever else but God was a savior. And think about it for yourself. What is it that you are looking to save you? And I don't even mean eternally. I mean save you financially or save you in this relationship or save you in this or save you in that. Is it God first, the only one who really can save you? Or are you looking to Egypt to save you? Because you don't think that God has the capacity to get you out of the mess you find yourself in. God cannot be contained He cannot be placed in a box. He cannot be categorized the way the the inhabitants of Judah were looking upon him. They had their religious life over here. That should keep God in our favor. We'll do our religious thing, but we'll work the rest of our life according to our wisdom. But God cannot be used like that. He won't have that. What we have is a huge shift occur in verse 5. Now, we have been reading through 28 and a half chapters now of Isaiah. You and I would both expect the next thing to come is more doom for these people. 
And that's what they deserve, and that's what we deserve, but that's not what we get because now it's down to the remnant. Two tribes are left, and he's promised the Messiah will come. There will be a day when the people of Israel pay as an ethnic group or as a nation, but it's not coming then because Messiah is not there yet. Uh, Jesus hasn't wept over Jerusalem yet because Jesus has not come yet. And so he must maintain a remnant. And so he'll work his grace even despite the disbelief that you will find here evidenced by their outward actions that are empty inwardly. Verse 5 shows us this shift. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing shaft. When you beat out wheat and shaft blows away with the wind, there's a lot of it, but it goes away and it's not of any consequence. That's what all your anxieties will be. All your enemies will be like that as they fade away. Wait a minute, he just brought them. He's disciplining them. Now he's saying, in the same instance, he's going to bring them away. He's going to be done away with them. God's enemies are all utterly nothing to him, inconsequential. Huge to us, but not to him. What are our enemies? What do we fear? They're nothing to God. Verse 5, And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. So he's predicting a siege will come upon Jerusalem, which will bring the discipline and the humbling they need so they cry out to God. He will force upon them the humility they need for salvation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? How were you saved? How did you come to know Christ? Out of your pride? Out of a high point in your life when you realized how brilliant you were? How spiritually enriched you were? Or was it when you were brought low and saw face-to-face your sin and knew that only Christ could save you? He brings them humble through the siege, but he says in the same moment, he's going to bring this deliverance to them. Verse 7, And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, they'll be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and awakes and his hunger is not satisfied. So the Assyrians are going to come in, they're going to occupy, and they're going to think that they've got it, and then in an instant, God's going to take it from them. And it won't ever be realized. The second part of verse 8, or when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint, with this thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion, another term for Judah, Jerusalem. In a supernatural flash, God is saying that he will cut down the army of Assyria, the same army he uses as an axe to discipline he'll cut down. What seemed like a great conquest for Assyria in a time for glory would be over in a flash like a dream. What seemed like a huge, overbearing nightmare for Judah would be over in a divine instant with the humility that God brings. It would be over. And God would do this not by giving great power to Judah's small but potent army, but rather by a show of total autonomous, sovereign strength and domination unlike anything that had been seen since the Exodus. God would lay waste to the massive, forbidding, and bloodthirsty army of a man named Sennacherib in 701 B.C. Isaiah recounts it later, as we'll get there in a few weeks or months maybe, and it's in the historic books in the Scripture as well, and it's described here 
as a forecast in the last part of verse 5 into verse 6. In an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts. The Lord will come with thunder, with earthquake, with great noise, with whirlwind, with tempest, and the flame of devouring fire. We will learn later that God sends his angels to destroy the army of Sennacherib. And we know from history that it was at this time, at this failed siege of Jerusalem, that Assyria started its descent and Babylon started its rise. It was this failed attempt on the part of Assyria that led to its demise as a power. They, they never recovered from this failed attempt at the siege, at this defeat at the hands of the angels of God. It wasn't Judah's army. It was God's mighty hand that worked through thunder, earthquake, great noise, whirlwind, tempest, in a flame of devouring fire unlike anything that had been seen in centuries. In verse 7, in the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. We have a humbling that happens in this opening section of chapter 29. A humbling to the Assyrians who would start their descent from greatness at this defeat. A humbling to Judah to know that they were trusting in Egypt rather than the God that's going to do what he just described. I mean, who is Egypt? They weren't even stronger than the Assyrians. And they're going to trust in Egypt instead of the God who brought them out of Egypt? Well, the only thing that maybe would impress the Israelites is something as great as the Exodus. How about wiping out an army of 180,000 plus trained soldiers? The humbling to Judah to know that their trust in Egypt was foolish. What a wonderful God. What a wonder-working God. And what a wonder God was doing. What he was planning, what would come to pass in Jerusalem. Verse 9, he says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. You know, wallow a bit in your unbelief when I tell you what I'm going to do, what I'm going to bring, the wonder that I will bring. You're in blindness. You are in a state of, of spiritual dumbness or numbness. Uh, but be astonished by what I will do. He's setting up. And this is a revelation that's important. Every one of us, every last one of us, is spiritually blind apart from God's grace. That's true of us. That's our state before he gives us eyes to see, before he removes the veil from our eyes. But there's something more going on here now. The prophets who lived in Judah, the priests who were in Judah, the symbolism of the temple and their rituals, they were teaching something, but they were blind to it. They could not understand it. They were spiritually dead in this way. And it is especially telling that the people who should have been telling them the truth all along were not proclaiming it like they should have, the prophets and the seers, the office of the preacher in the Old Testament. You know, prophets didn't just predict the future. They told the truth to the present age about what God's word said and how it applied. And look at the description of what this was like. Verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. So the prophets, who should have been giving the truth clearly to the people, had fallen into numbness and blindness themselves, partly by way of God's judgment for the overall lack of belief of the people. The prophets, empowered by God's Spirit to preach and apply God's Word, yet they were blind. Look at verse 11. In the vision of all this, what he's telling them about, what he'll do, 
what's coming to pass, why it's coming to pass, their need for humility. And the vision of all this has become, has become to you like the words of a book that's sealed. So you've got this revelation, but it's in a book that you can't open up. When men give it to one who can read, the prophets, they're supposed to be able to read what God's word says. Saying, read this. He says, I cannot, for it's sealed. I can't get into it. He has the technical skills to read, but he lacks the spiritual insight or access to it. Then, of course, if that's the case, if the prophet cannot open and read, what is there for the people? Verse 12. And when they give the book to the one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. They had no spiritual life or perspective. They looked religious outwardly, but were inwardly dead. Spiritual blindness, that's a condition unrelated to a person's intelligence or education. This book is completely undecipherable, the Word of God, to a person who has no spiritual eyes. And I think this is descriptive of much of the church today. Lots of people in pews today across this country but too many preachers who are blind and cannot open the book. Church attendance, it's up, but Christian commitment, we are told, is down. Talk of spirituality is prevalent, but biblical understanding and conviction is down. Why? Why is it that church attendance is apparently up in the U.S., but Christianity seems to be on the decline? I think, as in Isaiah's day, largely... Because there are blind preachers in powerless pulpits scratching the itching ears of people who want comfort over conviction and acceptance in the culture over the carrying of Christ's cross. That's why. God knows our outward actions when they have nothing behind them. Look at verse 13, and you will be... Uh, reminded of these words when you hear them because you've heard them before in the New Testament. Really, these verses 13 to 16 take up a pronouncement or an oracle. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore... Because of this empty worship, this superficial show, because of this hypocrisy, this fakery, therefore, behold, I will again bring judgment? No, it says he will do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. The reason he's going to bring this wonder to Jerusalem when he frees them from this siege is so that he will grip the hearts of his people once again. He's committed to his people so he will make their salvation wonder-filled again. Now, for us, it's not a promise of supernatural deliverance over and over again when we grow dull in our faith. We have the record of God's acts in redemption to encourage us afresh Every time, 
we're laid low in our spirits or we find ourselves going through the motions. God wonder fills us when we see the story of his redemption, the story of his salvation, how it's true corporately for his people and how it's true for you individually when you go back to the joy of your salvation, when you go back to that humble place of where you were first saved, when you first came to know that only Christ can save you. And it's from that place that we regain our footing in worship and we worship him in spirit and truth. And it's this place that you should hear that over and over again. It shouldn't all be wrote to you. It should be something that directs you to something inwardly powerful and outwardly real. And it happens when the word is preached, when we speak it, when we sing it, and we partake of the the sacraments. We are reminded again of the reality of the salvation that we have in Christ, and we are filled with wonder again on a regular basis. And it keeps us, in a sense, fresh. And here are the words that the prophet speaks, that Jesus uses 700 years after. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus applies the same principle to the Pharisees of his day who were going through all the outward motions. And they weren't just going through the outward motions. They had written extensive, extensive logs of new laws to help keep the old laws. It says in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to, to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now, he's not saying that the text we just read in Isaiah was just for the, the Pharisees. It means it's prophetic of this kind of action, this kind of devotion. It can be applied to us if we fall into outward Worship and not inward too. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Wow, I mean, Jesus goes back to the passage in Isaiah and applies it to the Pharisees of his day, and certainly we can be convicted of how this might apply to us. When we simply go through the religious motions, we are guilty of this kind of thing. It could be people numbly reciting readings and prayers in a service like ours. It could be people raising their hands as a show of spirituality in a more modern worship-styled praise band-type service. It could be any number of outward actions that do not manifest an inward reality. God knows our hearts, and he sees what's genuine. And he brings us a wonderful, wonder-filled salvation. Look at verse 14. Therefore, behold again, I will do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. So all the things they thought were smart, all those things that spoke against the wisdom of God, he will bring that low, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Whenever religion threatens to obscure our knowledge of God, God breaks through. He does it over and over again. Whenever too much religion gets heaped up, too much ritualism, too much rote, uh, too much rites and rules, and that becomes a defining factor. God breaks through by his spirit in many ways, and he's done it post-biblical history. The Reformation was a restoration of God's glory in a church that had become too religious. He does wonderful things. 
And wonders mean marvels, mean miracles in the biblical sense. Wonders mean personally transforming impacts to give the spiritually blind the gift of spiritual sight. That's a miracle. Who can explain it? To intercede like God does in redemption history, that's a wonder, it's a miracle, it's a marvel. Who can explain it? To sustain you in life's difficult waters, that's a wonder, that's a marvel. Who can explain it? And here Judah was secretly conspiring to seek Egypt's help because they doubted God's capacity to save them. Yet outwardly, they were doing all the religious things that declared that they believed in God. But God breaks through and breaks them out of their incongruence. Look at verse 15. This is that that awkward moment when God lets them know that he knows what they've been doing behind his back. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who says, who sees us, who knows us. You know, the religious person, the Christian person who says outwardly they believe in the scripture, they believe in his grace, but secretly I'm going to cheat on my taxes because I know that God doesn't see. Or I'm going to go to this website. I'm going to plan to go to this website. I know God doesn't want me to, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to speak about this person, do this thing, carry out this act, but I'm going to be at church on Sunday looking as bright and shiny as anybody. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel whose deeds are in the dark, and who says, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down, Isaiah says. You've got it all wrong. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing that was made, should it say of its maker, he did not make me? I mean, it's so backwards for us to think we could do things in secret that God doesn't know. He knows it all. He sees it all. We fear man more than him when we do it that way. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. How ridiculous to think that we can take control of matters, that we can work deals behind God's back that will work things out for us. You know, during the construction of the Tower of Babel, we have this vivid, vivid lesson about God's greatness in our smallness. They were building the greatest construction project ever built at that point, better and bigger than the ark. On par with the pyramids of Egypt, no doubt, probably bigger. The people were defiantly building a monument to themselves with the Tower of Babel. They weren't going to spread out like God said. They said, forget you, God. We're going to build this temple or this, this temple to ourselves called a tower. In fact, if you want to send a flood again, we'll build the tower so big that you can't get us. That's what he's saying. That's what they're saying with the tower. The greatest thing that mankind had ever made to that point in Genesis 11, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So small is the greatest thing that man ever built that God had to come down to see it. But we think we do things in secret. And God calls the people of Judah out with their treaty with Egypt. He knew what they were doing. And he doesn't bring upon fire and brimstone. It says in verse 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. God would bring a revival to Judah. Through godly leadership, he would open their eyes and they would see again the salvation of their God. 
And through this humbling process, it says in verse 19, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And that's what happens. Every time we're humbled again and we come to the gospel afresh, we obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. This switching of fortunes, the destruction of the mighty, those who help to oppress the helpless will have their day. Verse 20, for the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, the wa- and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. And he names everybody, the ruthless, those who are heartless oppressors, the scoffers, those who mock the truth, mock God, mock his justice, tempt him to do something, and all who watch to do evil, those who just lie in wait to take advantage of the person who's weak. The next verse is starting at verse 22 to the end, offers a summation of this two-chapter section, really. Verse 22, therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham. This is so important, brothers and sisters, that you see this. He does not call upon God's, his covenant with David here, although his covenant with David stands. It's gracious. It's incredible. But that's not what he calls upon here as the source of strength The covenant with David was a covenant of national pride, that there would always be a king on the throne. Pride. He does not go back to God's covenant with Moses in particular here. It still stands. It's not saying that that it doesn't. But that was a source, a bit of spiritual pride to them as they had misunderstood its placement. Even a bit of the we're more holy than everyone else thing. That's not what he appeals to. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. He's going to go all the way back to Abraham for his model of comfort for us. Why? Because Abraham was a pagan who did nothing to save himself. God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, called him out of disbelief, and he said to him, I will make you a great nation, and all the nations of earth will be blessed by you. Abraham is the first picture, the prototype of being saved by grace through faith. And that's the reference that we have for the people of Judah. And that's the reference for us of all time. Therefore, says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. This is what I'm going to do for you. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst they will sanctify my name. When he sees me do my work of grace, not just to them, but through their children, when they see this, they will be humbled afresh again and they will give praise to his holy name. They will sanctify his name when they see my saving work. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. What a picture of God's saving grace. God's wonder-filled salvation, which I might add, is irresistible to those who are his, and thank God for that. Because if we could lose our salvation, we absolutely would. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your covenant. We are so grateful for your sovereign grace. We are so grateful for the humbling that you bring to us so that we might once again appreciate your wonder-filled salvation to us in Christ. Pray that not one of us would be left the same way uh, that we came in, that we'd be different now going out. 
and that we would be moved and compelled to obedience because of what you've saved us from and what you've saved us to. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.